0: In the name of God, Most Merciful, Ever Merciful, and may God's peace and blessings be upon His Holy Prophet Muhammad and the purified members of His household and progeny. Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa ali Muhammad wa Brothers, sisters, respected viewers, assalamu wa barakatuh. We continue where we left off in our series, Life, the Islamic Answer, where we are exploring the theme of knowledge and reason and intellect in Islam. You will remember that the last time we met, we were discussing the duties of the teacher or the scholar, and specifically we said that perhaps there is no greater duty or greater responsibility that the scholar has than to spread knowledge beyond all the other duties, some of which we started to talk about and a few of which we will still have to mention. So while generally speaking, I think we've highlighted the importance of sharing knowledge for the scholar, for the teacher. And that part is clear, inshallah. We started to talk about the how of the teaching. And we said on one side, the sharing of the knowledge or the teaching has to be selective. You do not discuss, you do not present everything you know all the time to everyone. There is a way to think about and to select and to choose what is presented and in what context and to which audience. And so all of that we called it, you know, a wise sharing of information or knowledge. We said that the manner in which information or knowledge is to be shared, has to be done with humility and with mercy. And we saw a lot of hadith related to this, and inshallah today we will wrap up this notion as well. And we spent a bit of time discussing the story of Prophet Musa alayhi salam with the servant of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the Quran that the narrations tell us is al-Khidr, this servant of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala who was bestowed with, who had been given knowledge, granted knowledge from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and a special kind of mercy, the Holy Quran says, to the point where you have someone like Prophet Musa alayhi salam with his greatness, with his piety, with his religiousness, with his knowledge, wants to be his student and to learn from him. And we saw that even in that case, al Khadr did not start by saying, of course you can follow me and I'll teach you everything I know. He told him, no, you cannot follow me. You cannot be my student because you will not have the patience to go through what I will be going through because you do not have the preconditions. There are things that you lack. لَمْ خبرى, right? There are things that you are missing, lacking. Some information that you do not have that will make you too impatient. You will not be able to bear patiently the things that you will be exposed to. And at the end, Prophet Musa, السلام, after three events, in fact, he promised al-Khadr that if he were to go through something similar and to object once again, that they will depart. And that's exactly what happened at the end, and we discussed that story to the extent, and we'll come back to it again a little bit later in the series. We said that it's important in the narrations that there is no discrimination that takes place when it comes to knowledge. Everybody is equal before knowledge, and so this applies to, to the teacher that you do not discriminate between people learning. It applies to the learner that you do not discriminate between people teaching. And this should also apply to the community in general. So this means that the only criteria becomes knowledge. To the extent that you have a superior knowledge and a superior ability and all the traits that we described around knowledge, then that's what gives you a higher rank or a lower rank. There's nothing else. Otherwise, everybody is equal. And within that, you do not discriminate specifically, especially when it comes to accessing knowledge. Don't make it more difficult or more easy for some to access knowledge over others. People should feel like they have equal access to this knowledge. Then there was this number of sources of hadith teachings that had to do with Refraining from discussing things that you do not fully understand, that you do not fully control, you do not fully master. And if things are ambiguous, they are causing you doubt, you're perplexed about them, then those are what our religion refers to as shubuhat. Sometimes it's referred to as other things. We'll see a couple of examples. In all those cases, our religion says you must seek the path of precaution. And not engage in these things until you go and fully understand them or you stay away. If it's things that are related to talking and speaking and lecturing, you remain silent, religion says. And if they are things that have to do with acting, making decisions and taking action, then you do not take action. You do not engage in things where there are doubts, where you are perplexed, where you are unsure. You either find a way to become sure about it so that you know what your position is. Or you go continue to seek that knowledge or you let it go. A religion says you do not engage in things that are not clear to you. The truth, it should be clear. Black and white, good and bad, right and wrong. Too much doubt, it probably means it's not your obligation and we will see that today, inshallah. We saw the importance of, and this is what we finished with the last time we met, the importance of recognizing our ignorance. So this is especially the case for someone who wants to be a scholar or a teacher because as we said, this is not something that suddenly overnight you go from being a non-teacher to a teacher or a non-scholar to a scholar. This is something that happens over a long period of time. As you accumulate information and knowledge, you share that information and knowledge. Does it mean at some point that you have become a scholar in the absolute sense? No. And in fact, when we looked at the ahadith, when we looked at the narrations, the teachings of Imam Ali alayhi salam of Ahlul Bayt, they say what you know compared to what you don't know is very little. You know very little. What you ignore is much more. Focus on that. And this has a lot of benefits. Imam Ali alayhi salam was describing this in the, in the extract from his letter to his son. He tells him that when you are focused on what you ignore, you remain open-minded you remain eager and hungry to, to learn. And you remain hum- humble. You do not become closed-minded and reject things just because you haven't heard about them or know them, and so on and so forth. Okay, And of course, there is a spiritual dimension to all of this, and that's what we ended with. Because ultimately, this modesty or this humility stems from a spiritual aspect. You focus on what you know versus what you don't know, and you see how little you know, And it's about your relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Even those things that you do know, are you actually acting based on them? Are you actually living your life based on what you know? This is where we should focus. And so when someone focuses on that, it will be beneficial to learn new knowledge in the objective sense, just acquiring information. And it will be hugely beneficial at the spiritual level. You're approaching science as a spiritual endeavor. This has to do with your soul. You're acquiring knowledge for your soul. You're dealing with knowledge for your soul. And the way in which you use that knowledge in this world, this is secondary. It's important, but it's secondary. This is not the main objective. Right? During the week, I received a question about a couple of things that we said last week. And so I wanted to provide the clarification, inshallah, the people... Asking or watching, and inshallah we present it in a way that's beneficial to everyone. So the question had to do first with this narration in which the Holy Prophet وآله, was giving the traits of the believer to Imam Ali ﷺ. And we didn't recite, we said the, the narration is long. So the first question was about this narration. You'll remember, Ya Ali, من صفات المؤمن أن يكون جوال الفكر جوهري الدكر, كَثِيرًا عِلْمُهُ عَظِيمًا حِلْمُهُ And then what we were focusing on, Min مِنَ الْمُحَرَّمَاتِ وَاقِفًا عِنْدَ الشُّبُهَاتِ Okay, so O Ali, one of the qualities of the believer, is that he has a very far-reaching mind, or I translated it as a hyperactive mind. Okay, and always in a state of remembrance. Maybe the way, best way to translate this is to say that his normal state is that he is in remembrance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Always remembering that God is watching, God is present. Abundant is his knowledge, great is his patience. And then later the Holy Prophet says, he is clean or he is innocent from sins, from anything that is forbidden. And he stops at doubtful matters. He does not engage in things where there is doubt, where there is perplexity. Okay, And inshallah, that part is clear. We spent enough time discussing this hadith. So the first question about it has to do with whether this is a sermon and whether it's a sermon in Nahj al-Balagha. So as we said, no. This is from the Holy Prophet ﷺ talking to Imam Ali ﷺ. We have numerous hadith in which the Holy Prophet gives wasaya, gives pieces of advice and teachings to Imam Ali ﷺ. In this one specifically, as I said, but I didn't read this part, so I brought it this week. I said the Holy Prophet was telling Imam Ali that the believer has 103 traits, 103 characteristics. Okay, So the hadith ruya anna Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa alihi, qal la yakmulul mu'minu imanahu hatta yahtawi ala ma'atin wa thalathi khisal. And then the Holy Prophet says, fi'lin wa'amalin wa niyatin wa baatinin wa zahir. Faqala Amirul Mu'minin alayhi salam يَا رَسُولَ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهِ وَآلِهِ مَالْمَاءَ وَالثَّلَاثِ خِصَالِ فَقَالَ يَعْلِي مِنْ صَفَاتِ الْمُؤْمِنِ أَنْ يَكُونَ جَوَّالَ الْفِكْرِ كَثِيرُ الذِّكْرِ and uh, so on and so forth. جَوْهَرِيَ الذِّكْرِ and and the rest. So the beginning of the hadith that we did not recite, the Holy Prophet, it's narrated that the Holy Prophet said to Imam Ali alayhi salam, the believer's faith is not complete until it encompasses so that faith encompasses, includes 103 qualities. And then the Holy Prophet says in terms of action, fi'l, action, deed, so amal, there's a difference. If you want to be technical, there are three layers to act. There is fi'l, there is amal, and there is perhaps act. There is fi'l, there is amal, and there is perhaps sun. Quran talks about sunnah. The fi'l does not necessarily have to be even something that you intend to do. Fi'l is any action. Even like if you go back in Arabic, you can say for instance, fi'l al-riyah. This is the action of the wind. Okay, it does not even need to be kind of a conscious entity willfully performing an act. But all of that is called fi'l in Arabic. So any act that is output by the believer. Okay, and then there is the amal. The amal is an act, but that has an intent. You intend to do something. And so amal is, when you see the Holy Quran, the Holy Quran focuses on amal. It's not that there is no fi'l in the Quran. Ma yaf'alun, there is yaf'alun. But there is mostly in the Holy Quran, the focus is on amal. Because you perform an act with an intention that you desire. You actually uh, intend to perform the act in a certain way. That's the second. And then there's the sunnah. And the sunnah has what the sunnah has the you can add a layer of you know let's say you were to perform art when you want to perform art you're not just gonna do you're gonna take time to plan and you're gonna do it in a way that is very meticulous very thought out you might take your time to do it right so this is sunnah right sunnah for instance a craft. It requires an attention, and these are three layers of an act that is performed by someone. So here the Holy Prophet says, these 103 traits, they apply in all these levels. So there is fi'l, there is amal, there is niyyah, there is zahir, and there is batin. All of that is shown in these three 103 traits. And then the Holy Prophet continues when Imam Ali tells him, of course, this is the main trait we said of Imam Ali he doesn't waste one opportunity. The Holy Prophet says, there are all these traits. Imam Ali salam right away asks, what are they? I want to know them so that I can apply them. And so the Holy Prophet begins by explaining the 103. We said, inshaAllah, later in the series we're going to focus on these. We saw that, you know, in a number of narrations that we saw, we're just focusing on the traits that have to do with the topic we're addressing, we're talking about. If you go back in our narrations, you see these beautiful Narrations that have many, many traits all put together, all of them, they give us the image of the perfect believer. The believer is what? The exemplary Muslim, the exemplary follower of Ahlul Bayt, alayhim When you put it together outwardly, inwardly, spiritually, psychologically, how they manage their time, how they behave in life, and so on and so forth. Right? how they are with themselves, how they are with their family, how they are with their brothers, how they are in society, how they plan ahead, how they are patient and resilient and strong, where they are compassionate and merciful and easygoing. Right? All of that, inshallah, we'll talk about. We'll have a dedicated series later when we're done with knowledge. That's the one of the first ones, inshallah. We'll talk about the importance of religion and what's the purpose of religion, and then we'll start talking about the human being and the faculties of the human being. And that's when we'll talk about all of these traits. We'll go through these narrations that present these traits. In fact, there are entire volumes that have been written about these traits. There's al you have al-Khisal, you have full volumes that our scholars have written where they've put together the traits that a human being in general or a believer or a follower of Ahl al-Bayt specifically is supposed to, this play is supposed to carry in themselves if they are a follower of Ahl al-Bayt and of this religion. Okay, so if anyone wants to go back, I took this from Mustadraq al-Wasail, volume 11, Um, but this was also in Bihar al-Anwar, volume 64, page 310, hadith 25, and there's a book, it's a beautiful book called the tamhiyas by Ibn Humam al-Iskafi, page 74, hadith 171, and that whole book is really worth um, reading for those who can. Anyways, so that's the first. The source of this is it a sermon in Nahj al-Balagha? No, it's not a sermon in Nahj al-Balagha. Secondly, there was a question about waqfan 'anda shubuhat. So the person is asking. When we saw these, we saw a couple of ahadith. Really, this one and another one, where we saw this this expression and shubuhat that this person, especially the scholar, but we said all of this applies to all of us, they stop at, literally, translating it literally, they stop at doubtful things. Okay, they don't engage in them. So the person is asking, does this mean that you do not enter, you do not delve into, you do not engage in things that are shubha, doubtful? That's one maybe meaning. Or does it mean that you actually stop at them so that you study them and think about them and reflect on them. Because that's also one reason why you might stop at something. For those who have heard the hadith, for instance, we have many ahadith telling us that al Bayt Salam used to do this and they would actually say this in their teachings. They say when you recite the Holy Qur'an and you find something in a verse, stop at the verse, open it like you would open a treasure, the imams say. And look what's in it. Does it talk about heaven? So that you can think about that and what it means for you and pray to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that you move in this direction, that this applies to you. Does it talk about hell? Pray to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that this does not apply to you and do what you can to stay away from that. Does it give you ahkam? Does it give you morals from stories from other nations? Okay, so that's one way of stopping at something. So the person is asking when it says stop at when they say وَاقِفًا shubuhat, Does it mean, does the hadith maybe mean that we're stopping at them to study them and reflect on them? That's the second meaning. Or does it mean, the third meaning that they're asking about, is that it's you act with precaution. You take extra precautions when there are doubts, when you're perplexed, when you're not sure, you act with precaution. The short answer is it's definitely the first all of these hadith that have to do with Shubuhat and with fitan and with things that have riba in them and we're going to see a couple of it all of these are focused on not engaging it's the opposite of spend time thinking about it they're telling you stay away from it don't spend any time or energy about things where there is doubt and perplexion okay and this is not to say don't go learn that's very different These are situations where in a lot of cases there is no right and wrong. There is no black and white. There is no truth and falsehood. It's not that clear. And in a lot of cases, if it's not your obligation, stay away from it. You don't need to waste energy and time on this. Not for your religion and not for other reasons, even socially, culturally, in the community. Don't feed things that are going to be useless or perhaps even harmful. But in general, in religion... And that's why, because I received this question, I thought, let's spend just a few minutes talking about this, so that we're very clear. When I say that, the real answer here is stay away from things that are doubtful until it becomes very clear to you and they're no longer doubtful things. The truth is, the third answer also applies because the third answer was you act out of precaution. Yes, this is out of precaution. What you're actually doing is staying away. And that's the meaning of يَقِف or وَاقِفًا You do not engage in, you stop, you refrain from, you abstain. The reason you do it is because you act based on precaution. You do اِحْتِيَاط. And this is a whole topic in our religion that we can address in different ways. One way, which is the way I don't want to address it, but I will mention it quickly. One way is if we want to look at this from the technical and legal aspect. If you go back to fiqh and usul al-fiqh, this is a huge topic. You can spend a very long time discussing this. And there are you know, these themes that are studied in usul al-fiqh regarding all of this. For instance, is your main position by default, is your position that you are free to do whatever you feel like and however you want to act until you have a 100% clear proof that something, for instance, is forbidden, illegal, not allowed, in that case you don't do it. Or if you have a doubt that this is illegal, you should avoid. Well, there are differences of opinion. And this is what you see in fiqh and usul al-fiqh, if you study there is something called, for instance, asalat al-baraa, or what they call ishtighal. Ishtighal is related to the idea that, by default, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the Lord and creator and you are a servant. So by default, your position is that you are always in a state of obedience. There is always a duty. Therefore, you must act based on precaution. Otherwise, you're no longer meeting the duty. You're always exposing yourself, putting yourself in a situation where you're no longer meeting the duty. That's one position. Some usulieen and fuqaha say that. And others say no. They say, "Qubhul iqabi Allah subhanahu wa taala now will not punish someone without having established a clear proof for them first, and so you do not need to go all the way in uh, uh, limiting yourself, uh, staying away from things, avoiding certain things if you don't have a clear proof that this is something to be avoided, right? And so this is asalatil baraah And bara'a is split in different, there's bara'a aqliya, bara'a shar'iyya, and all of that. So this is a technical discussion that we're not getting into. I'm just highlighting it for those who want to study it, one. And two, for us, practically speaking, this is where you rely on the jurist. This is where you rely on the mujtahid. The mujtahid is doing all this work, going through the ayat, going through the ruwayat to establish these principles, to see how... They interact with each other and what which one applies where in our daily lives. Okay, so that's the first aspect of this. The second aspect of this. And as I said, this is not our topic, but just so that we complete the topic that has to do with Shubuhat. The first hadith from Imam al-Baqir alayhi salam, which is also narrated from Imam Ali, he says, al عند min al halaka تُرْوَهُ خَيْرٌ مِنْ رُوَايَتِكَ حَدِيثًا لَمْ تُحْصِهِ وَإِنَّ عَلَىٰ كُلِّ حَقِّ حَقِّيقَةٌ وَعَلَىٰ كُلِّ صَوَابٍ نُورًا فَمَا وَافَقَ كِتَابَ اللَّهِ فَخُذُوا بِهِ وَمَا خَالَفَ كِتَابَ اللَّهِ فَدَعُوهِ So, whether from Imam Ali or Imam Al-Baqir alayhi salam to refrain from doubt is better than to embark into destruction or devastation. And this iqtiham, the Imam uses the word iqtiham it could mean you embark, you know, you get on a ship, you go up a mountain. Or, and this is how it's usually used in Arabic, there is a, a, an aspect of bravery. You attack, you rush into something, you enter it with bravery, iqtiham. You enter the war, the battlefield. Okay, the imam here, he says, الوقوف الشبهة, to stop and to refrain from entering the shubha, is better than khayrun min al to enter, to rush into what? Min al This is destruction. The imam is equating the shubha with the halaka. If you have doubts, you're probably entering into something that ends up destroying you, really or metaphorically and spiritually. Okay, and then the imam continues, and leaving aside, and so this is a direct link to knowledge. This is what the imam, we've been talking about here, the imam explicitly says it. And leaving aside a saying, you have not heard, in other words, the imam saying, leaving aside a hadith, a ruwayah, a narration, that you have not been taught. That's what, the, what it really means. You have not been instructed. And so the imam continues, that's what's the teaching. is better than narrating a saying you have not fully comprehended. If you do not understand it fully, you haven't been taught this one fully. It's better not to say it. And this is the example that the imam is giving for the shubah. You see how light we might think that it's something, you know, a huge crisis, a huge... The imam gives a very simple example. We might think this is very trivial, something very simple. What the, what's the big, you know, crucial significance of a single hadith? The imam says there's a single hadith that you have not really learned fully, you have not comprehended fully, It's better not to engage in it. Remain silent. Don't talk about it. You have not been taught this hadith fully. Leave it aside. It's better. Then the imam continues, and then he explains this. This is very important. Indeed, every truth, the imam says, has a reality or a sign. So this might seem ambiguous. What does it mean? But the imam explains it right away. He says, And every truth has a guiding light, so whatever aligns with the book of God, then hold on to it. And whatever contradicts the book of God, then leave it aside. And so here he gave us the criteria. How do I know? What's my guiding light? How do I know that this truth has truth behind it? What do I refer to? The Imam says, go back to the book of God. Go back to the Quran. It needs to align with it. So first, this notion that we had, that perhaps the meaning of Shubuhat and to do وقوف or توقف عند الشبهات that it means that I'm going to stop at them to study them and reflect on them so that you know it's something that deserves my reflection. No, no, that's not what it's saying. The imam says stay away from these things. It's the ex- exact opposite. The imam is saying when in doubt, when perplexed, leave it aside. You don't need to engage in this. And secondly, yes, it is all about precaution. You're not sure, the imam says, you don't need to engage. Act with precaution, very clearly, explicitly stated. You do not fully comprehend it, let it go. And three, this way of the imam saying, if the hadith has not been taught to you, shows the importance of learning the hadith. That this is not something to take in a trivial way. Don't just take it as superficial reading. You think that just because you can read a hadith, it means that you understood it. You might need a little bit of direction, guidance around this hadith or that one. How will you know? Right? So there's there might be something missing, but this is a clear indication. And this is not now, this is not after, you know, science evolved and became much more complex. This is attributed to Imam al-Baqir or Imam Ali alayhi salam. We're going back to, The beginnings, the earliest beginnings of our religion. And it says don't just take the hadith like that. Make sure that you have been taught the hadith so that you fully understand its meaning. And then you can talk about it. And then the criteria that the imam is giving. Here there are two criteria. One of them is very clear. How do I know that this is truth? What will take me out of my state of perplexity, of doubt, so that I become certain about it? The main criteria is the Holy Qur'an. That one is clear. Hence the importance of studying the Holy Qur'an. You have to have a solid foundation in the Qur'an. One. Two, the one that we might miss, but it's there in the hadith. It's the narration. The hadith itself, the imam says, learn the hadith. These two go together. You need the hadith and you need the Holy Qur'an. The Holy Qur'an is the ultimate criteria because there is a lot in the hadith. This is perhaps part of the philosophy, a masterful, if not miraculous philosophy in our religion. It's not that the ahadith are more or less important. It's as though from the time of the Holy Prophet, when the Holy Prophet would say, we have uh, many instances in which we are told the Holy Prophet came out to the people, got on his pulpit and he would say, those who are lying on my behalf are many. They're numerous in his life. So imagine generations afterwards, how much fabrication and distortion there is in the hadith. And that's why Ahlul Bayt, alayhi as they're not telling you don't study the hadith. All the truth is in the hadith. The details, the applications are all in the hadith. But if you only rely on the hadith, you will have trouble distinguishing which ones are true fully, which ones are partially true, and which ones are fabrications. They contradict each other. Which one do you rely on? And you can't just rely on chains of transmission, and you can't just rely on the content. Those who fabricated and distorted the hadith, they were experts in hadith. They knew how to put it together in a way that you can't find out that easily. So that a scholar would accept this as a hadith. So you need a criteria that is even more solid, which is the Holy Qur'an. Now I can go back to the hadith and distinguish. Okay, in any case, that's the first hadith. The next ahadith uh, we can go a lot faster inshallah from Imam Ali alayhi salam. Again from this same letter to either Imam al-Hassan alayhi salam or Muhammad ibn al-Hanafiyya. The imam says at some point, Wada al وَدَعِ الْقَوْلَ فِي مَا لَا تَعْرِفْ وَالنَّظَرَ فِي مَا لَا تُكَلَّفْ وَأَمْسِكْ عَنْ طَرِيقٍ إِذَا خِفْتَ ضَلَالَتَهْ فَإِنَّ الْكَفْ عِنْدَ حَيْرَةِ الضَّلَالَةِ خَيْرٌ ahwal. The imam tells him, abstain from speaking about that which you do not have knowledge, which you do not know. That one is clear. دَعَ الْقَوْلِ فِي, ما لا تعرف. والنظر في ما لا تكلف. And refrain from contemplating matters that are not your obligation. You have no taklif, you have no obligation about this, you don't need to spend more time on this. Focus on the things that are your priorities. And do those first. Okay, this is an important Life principle for all of us, and then the Imam continues. So, this is all to explain when we said this is the meaning when it says, The Imam here is clear, clear, hold back from a path if you fear its misguidance. If you fear that this is a path that will get you lost, you will be misguided, you will no longer be able to say, This is my path, this is where I'm going. The Imam says, You abstain. This is precaution. He's not saying you will get lost. If you fear, if there's a possibility of getting lost, you don't need to go on that path. You have a clear path where the truth is clear to all, manifest to all. Follow that path. Leave the things that are doubtful. And the imam continues, for abstaining, the reason for abstaining when uncertain is better to stay away when you are not sure is better than embarking on fatal ventures. Perilous journeys. Don't go on a path where you might end dying. The imam is using a metaphor of someone traveling in the desert. He's saying, why do you go on a path when you know that there is a there is a possibility of getting lost, being misguided, and ending up dead? Did you have to go there? No. Don't. And the imam, of course, is talking about religion. This is in religious matters. Next, hadith. These are two hadith that start in the same way, both attributed to the Holy Prophet the first one, I think, is an incredible hadith. The Holy Prophet says, yurībuk ilā māla yurībuk." You see, each one of these is using a different term. It's not always about shubha. Here, the Holy Prophet says, "Leave that about which you are left in doubt or perplexed." You have riba. Dāma yurībuk ilā yurībuk. Leave it aside and replace it by that which about which you have no perplexity, no doubt. فَإِنَّكَ لَنْ تَجِد you are not going to feel like you missed out on anything if you leave something for God. Refrain from it. Stay away from it. This is an incredible hadith. The Holy Prophet is talking about doubtful things. But this is going to apply even more to things where there is no doubt. The Holy Prophet says there is something you have a doubt about it. You're not sure if this is something you should engage in or not. This is something you should smoke or not, eat or not, do or not, listen to or not. You just have a rib. You just have a doubt. You're not sure. You're not sure that this is a sin. It might be and it may not be. What's the advice of the Holy Prophet in that situation? He says, Leave it. You have a doubt about it? Leave it. For the sake of God, leave it. And if you do... The Holy Prophet is telling you you will never feel like you're missing out on anything. You won't taste the loss of that thing if you left it for God. Make sure that you're leaving it for God. You won't feel like you're missing out on anything. So imagine what would the Holy Prophet say if we're talking about a real sin. You know this is a sin. You know this is something forbidden. Here the Holy Prophet is saying if you're in doubt you will not feel that you're missing out. For of course, we will say here, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will help you even more. If you're doing it for God, for the sake of God, God will help you even more. Not feel the loss. Not feel like you're missing out on anything. The next hadith, again, as we said, starts in the same way. يُرِيبُكَ إِلَى But the end is different. فَمَنْ ra'a حَوْلَ الْحِمَى يُوشَكُ أَنْ Why? Why does the Holy Prophet say, stay away from that which is doubtful and go towards that which, about which you have no doubt? Because the person who grazes or who shepherds around the hema, around the area that is protected, like a king who has a, a protected area, no one is allowed to enter that, and you take all your sheep and you keep grazing them all near that area, eventually they will enter there and they will start eating from there. Okay, and we have other hadith. I didn't have time to find them. There is something that is a danger to you. Ahlul Bayt say, or in this hadith the Holy Prophet says, don't go roaming around that danger. You know something is forbidden. That part is clear. Around it, there is doubt. Right? This part is clearly a sin. The things that lead up to the sin, they might not be sins in themselves. They, not, they, they may not be forbidden in themselves. It's a gray area. Our religion says, avoid the gray area. This is a precaution. Don't take your sheep to graze in that gray area because you will end up falling into it. And this is how we, by the way, we live our lives. This is a test for us, this hadith. Or when Ahlul Bayt say, you know, don't walk around the well that has no fence, you will end up falling. Or in, in our way of talking today, we say, you know, you're, you're playing with fire. Eventually you will get burnt. You keep playing with fire, you will get burnt. The question is, how much do you care? This becomes a test. If you actually believe that there's something of a danger, something that will impact you, harm you, you won't keep playing, the risk is too great. You say, it's not worth it. Why do I keep playing with fire? Why do I keep playing with an electric plug? I'm not an electrician. I'll just get someone who's qualified. Because you have belief. You have faith that there is harm here. So you won't engage. You care enough. Do you care enough in the same way when it comes to things where perhaps precaution is needed in religion? Do you also say, I won't engage. I don't need to. There's a million other things I could be doing, putting my energy, putting my time. Do I absolutely have to do the thing where in my heart I know it might not be a sin, but it's a gray area. Do I need to do this? Our religion says, no, stay away. And we're going to see the other ahadith. But this one is very clear. The Holy Prophet says, at the end, you will fall in it. If you keep staying in that area that is not haram, but it's gray, you have doubts in your heart about this, then you will fall on the haram. No one should be telling themselves, yeah, but I'm different, I'm strong, it won't work on me, it won't apply. The Holy Prophet says, no, it will. You will fall if you stay in that gray area in doubt and perplexity. Next hadith from Imam al-Baqir, Imam al-Sadiq alayhi salam. Imam al-Sadiq says, وَإِنَّمَا الْأُمُورُ ثَلَاثَةَ All matters fall into three categories. There are matters that have a clear guidance. Those matters should be followed. You're 100% sure that this is a matter of guidance. Allah says, pray, fast, help the poor, right? Clear guidance. you have no doubt. And there are matters. Where it is clearly a matter of misguidance. Those things are to be avoided. Then the Imam continues, wa amrun mushkilun yuradu ilmuhu ilallah. there are things that have that are problematic. So those things, their knowledge should be referred back to God. And in one version of the hadith, "Ilallah wa ila rasule. Go back to Allah, go back to the Holy Quran, go back to the narrations of Ahl-Bayt to see if you can. Take that thing that is doubtful and bring it back to one of the two categories, where it's a clear guidance or a clear misguidance. Qala Rasulullah, so the Imam here is now going back to the Holy Prophet to explain this further. Qala Rasulullah the Messenger of God said, Halalun bayin, وَحَرَامٌ bayin, وَشُبُهَاتٌ bayna thalik. In other words, all matters are three, as the Imam is saying. There is clear halal, clear things that are allowed. Clear things that are forbidden, haramun bayyin, they're clearly forbidden. And between them, there are matters that are wa shubuhatun bayna that are doubtful, where you have doubt. Faman taraka the Holy Prophet is now talking. The Imam says, the Holy Prophet said this. Faman taraka shubuhat, min al muharramat. You see, the Holy Prophet did not even, he skipped over the haram. The haram is clear. Your duty, your obligation towards the haram is clear. You avoid it. The Holy Prophet did not talk about it. He didn't mention it. He said, you want to escape from falling into haram? You want to have the discipline to avoid the forbidden? What do you do? The Holy Prophet says, you go one step before. And you avoid things that are doubtful. Don't engage in things that are doubtful. It will lead to haram. Right? So, very clear. The Holy Prophet says, whoever avoids doubtful matters will have escaped unlawful things, haram things. But whoever indulges, the Holy Prophet continues, woman أَخَذَ اِرْتَكَبَ الْمُحَرَّمَاتِ The one who, just like the other hadith, the one who does engage in doubtful matters will end up doing what is forbidden, what is illicit. وَهَلَكَ مِنْ حَيْثُ لَا يعلام. And then this person will perish without even realizing it. Why? Because in your mind you keep justifying it to yourself that what you're doing is fine. It's not haram. And the Holy Prophet saying, But you're perishing and not even realizing you are now getting sucked into the forbidden, into the illicit. Then he said at the end of the narration, stopping at doubtful matters is better than embarking or rushing or braving dangerous matters. The same ending as the previous hadith. Now We have a hadith that talk about these shubuhat and how to deal with them in a little bit more nuance. We're not just saying everything has to be avoided. We have a hadith from Imam Ali alayhi salam who says that these types of shubuhat, it's a long hadith, I don't have time to go through it, the part that is relevant to us, the Imam talks about shubuhat. He begins from kufr. He says kufr is made up of four parts or four categories. And then he explains each one of them. And then when he explains this, he goes to explain how each one of them is also made up of four. Until he reaches, so when he begins, he says, Disbelief, kufr, is built on four pillars. There are four pillars for disbelief wickedness or fisk, indecency, open, sinning towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. الغلو, extremism, ashek, doubt, was shubha suspicions. You're not clear. Those are what make up, the four pillars that make up disbelief, kufr. You reject Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala through these, either combined or each one of them can lead to kufr. I'll skip all the explanation, I'll go to the shubha. The imam says, wa to ala arba'i shu'ab. The shubha is also made up of four. What are they? إِعْجَابٌ بِالزِّينَةِ وَتَسْوِيلُ النَّفْسِ الْعِوَجِ أو الْعِوَجِ وَلَبْسُ الْحَقِّ بِالْبَاطِلِ So the imam says, that which leads, there are four categories of shubha. Four causes that end up at a shubha. Either it's because of being impressed or being in admiration of or being distracted by adornments, distractions. Things that beautify, those things become distractions. You view them as being beautiful. That will lead to a shubha. Or self-delusion. You trick yourself. You justify it to yourself. You tell yourself this is acceptable, or this is actually good and beneficial." When you know deep down, this is doubtful, but you suddenly turn it into something good for you. For yourself, the Imam says, you convince yourself that this is not a problem, this is not great, doesn't require precaution, doesn't require staying away from. This is when you create interpretations you reinterpret or misinterpret something that is crooked al is something that is crooked, it's not straight you reinterpret it in a way that makes it seem that this is proper, this is good, this is beneficial or finally walabsi al bil-ba'til you take something that is falsehood and you present it as though you cover it with a covering that this is truth all of these things lead to Shubah. Okay, So again, all of this to emphasize the point or give the rationale, the reasons in our religion why you stay away from the Shubha. These are things that lead to it. And from this hadith we would say, therefore, if I'm studying a Shubha, maybe I want to understand. Because I'm not going to deal with the Shubha in the same way if I know where it's stemming from. Sometimes the Shubha is a Shubha because of the way it's presented to me. Sometimes the shubha is becoming a shubha because what I'm trying to convince myself of. It's not a problem in itself. It's not really a shubha. I'm making it a shubha for myself. I'm trying to convince myself that this is something beneficial or okay to do or not harmful. I'm deluding myself, the imam says. This might be the reason. Otherwise, the thing in itself is very clear. It's not a shubha. It's black and white. Or I was deceived by the decorations and ornaments. Right? I'm impressed, I'm distracted by the zina. By the manner in which the thing was decorated to me. Okay? Again, it should not be a shubha. It should be clear enough. So the imam is reducing it to its core for you. Not in all of these cases I should avoid. In those cases I should know what it is and deal with it. If I'm deluding myself, I should deal with that. Otherwise the thing is not a shubha in itself. Okay? Quickly, a few hadith related to this. First one from Imam Ali alayhi salam, he says, "La wara' There is no piety, there is no religiousness, like refraining from doubtful matters. So this is God-fearing and piety. And as we said, this shows your belief. The Imam says there is nothing like this. We might think piety means that someone who is praying all night and fasting all day and reciting the Holy Qur'an all the time. Here the imam says there is no piety, there is no God-fearing that is as clear as staying away from Shubha. Why? Because this shows that you really care. Not only will you not engage in the haram, you will try to avoid things that are doubtful. The next hadith, this is a wasiyah from Imam Ali alayhi salam to Imam al-Hasan. He tells him, أُوسِيكَ bika wasiyya. بِمَا بِهِ رَسُولَ اللَّهِ, الله Oh Hassan, he says, I advise you and you are indeed worthy of advice with what the Holy, the Messenger of Allah advised me, gave me as advice. So it's a long hadith and then he says shubhati wal When you are facing a shubha, something that is perplexing, doubtful, what do you do? This is what we talked about earlier, the scholar. What are you supposed to do? You stay silent. Don't engage. There's doubt. You're not sure. So the imam, Imam alayhi is telling Imam al-Hassan, don't engage. Stay silent or apply restraint, tasad. Apply restraint. If you have to, make it as minimal as possible. And so of course here, the imam is including everything. As we said, sometimes the shubha has to do with something you have to say or not say. But sometimes it has to do with something you have to give or not give. Something you have to do or not do. The Imam here, he gave us the full principle. The rule that applies to everything. If it's a matter of speech, stay silent. So long as possible. If you can't, iqtisad. Minimalist. Don't engage more than you need to. Strict minimum. Next hadith from Imam al-Baqir alayhi salam. لَمَّا سَأَلَهُ زرارة عَن حَقِّ اللَّهِ تَعَالَى عَلَى الْعِبَادِ So Zerara, one of the closest companions of Imam al-Baqir and Sadiq alayhi he asks Imam al-Baqir alayhi what is the right of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala upon the servants? So this is one of the answers, there are many. In one of them he says, To say, this is one of the rights of God upon people, is that they say what they know. And what about what they don't know? The Imam says, وَيَقِفُوا. They stop, they refrain, they abstain. Don't engage in that which you do not know. And again here, you see how it applies in general, and all of this applies even more to the scholar and the teacher. Next hadith from Imam Al-Jawad salam, So that we wrap it up, we said the topics about the teacher and the scholar, ulama ilal the scholar who is most capable of getting you to your destination, to your goal, أَقْصَدُ الْعُلَمَاءِ الْمُمْسِكِ the, the one who refrains from entering or engaging in the Shubha, engaging in the things that are doubtful, which is maybe what the opposite of what we would think. Okay? A couple of verses from the Quran that I think are related to this topic, again, without too much commentary very quickly the Holy Quran uses a term or a wording in some verses that I think is very much worth paying attention to in Surah al-Isra there are of course a series of verses that give general instructions in life Okay, we don't have time to go through them at some point in verse 32 it says And then two verses later it continues. Don't do this, don't do that. And then two verses later it says وَلَا illa ahsan hatta So literally the verse is saying and do not approach adultery. It's indeed a shameful indecency and an, ev- and an evil way. And a little bit later, two verses later, it says, and do not approach, do not come near, do not go near the wealth of the orphan unless it is with what is best, that it improves their wealth, right? Except in the most virtuous way, until he reaches his maturity or until she reaches her maturity. We have another verse in the Qur'an, in Surah Al-An'am, similar again for the yatim. We have a very very similar verse in Surat Al-An'am but then it also says there's three verses in Surat Al-An'am that describe, we don't have time to talk about it now, one after the other, they give you all the prohibitions, all the things that are not allowed, forbidden and so it says this one, قُلْ أَتْلُمَا حَرَّمَ رَبُّكُمْ عَلَيْكُمْ Allah Tishlikubi Shay and Wabilwali Dani Hassan. Walla Tak tulu Aulada Kumin Imlatan Nahnunar Zukukumu Iahum Wala Takara Bulfawa Heshma Bahara Minhawa Mahabatan. So the verse says, Say, Come, I will recite to you that which your Lord has made forbidden to you, that you ascribe nothing as partner to him, and that you be virtuous towards your parents, and that you slay not your children out of fear for of poverty. We will provide for you and for them. And then again, the same wording. And do not approach indecencies, the outward ones and the inward ones, or the apparent ones and the hidden ones. And slay not the soul that God has made inviolable, save if it is right, except if it's right, this he has enjoined upon you that you may understand. The construction here is, and there are others, this is just one example. How we have to pay attention to the wording of the Quran. We have verses in the Quran that say, don't do this. Here the verse could have said, don't commit adultery. It didn't say that. It said, do not approach adultery. Don't go near it. It's not don't do it. These are very two different things. Sometimes it says, don't do something. So you can go close to it, but you can't do it and you have verses where it says if it has to do with the wealth of the orphan don't even go close to it don't even think about it don't even do anything that may become a precursor that will eventually get you down there and that's why adultery itself is haram, but anything that may lead to it, that may, it's not that anything that will lead, anything that may lead to it, becomes haram and the Holy Quran here is clear It doesn't say, don't do it. It says, لا تقربوا. Don't go close to it. Don't go near it. Stay far away from this. The same idea that we said. You find it in the hadith. We saw one hadith where the Holy Prophet says, don't bring your sheep to graze somewhere where it's supposed to be kind of a protected area, for instance. It's owned by a king, let's say. You don't enter that sanctuary. Because they will graze there, eventually. You will fall in, eventually. Here, the Holy Quran says, you do not even approach. Or in the second verse in Surah Al An'am, it's very clear. It talks about Al Fawahish. All indecencies. Ma'dhahara minha wa ma'batat. It could mean things that are external, things that you do with your body and things that you do with your soul. Or it could mean things that you do that people see, clear to all, and things that no one knows about. Right? Ma'dhahara minha wa ma'batat. In any case, so all of this to come back to this idea that in our religion, this notion of taking precaution, acting with precaution, is from beginning to end. Of course, it applies even more to the scholar, because they are in a position of influencing, in a position of teaching. But this applies to everyone. So these are some narrations. As we said, this is not our topic. But because I received some questions about this, I thought maybe it deserves a slightly more detailed explanation so that we are clear. We are not saying that the hadith or the verses are saying spend time to stop at it, to think about it even more and engage in it even more. No, it's saying the opposite. It's saying stay away. Unless you have a way for reaching the truth about it and so no, it is no longer a matter of doubt and suspicion so that it becomes clearly, as the hadith is saying, Three, three types of matters. Either clear guidance or clear misguidance. You can get it back into one of those two categories, great. If it remains in a category of doubt, you stay away. You don't engage. It's not, I'm going to spend more time thinking about it and more energy and more engagement with it. Okay? There was also a question of whether we will make all of these hadith available with a document or this is a request we've received a lot, so inshallah we will make that available, yes. Finally, there was a quick passage, فَإِنْ أَشْكَلَ Where is this passage? So if, this, you, you will remember this again, it's the same letter from Imam Ali alayhi salam to his son after the Battle of Safin. It's a long letter. Yes, this is in Nahj al-Balagha. It's asking again for the source. The Imam is basically saying, whatever you encounter in your life and you fail to, Explain it entirely based on your prior knowledge, then attribute it to your ignorance. Simply say, I do not know enough about it. And then the imam goes on to explain all the benefits of what we called a default position of ignorance. Start by saying, I don't know, and I will find out. Don't start by saying, I already know, and if it doesn't match, then it's wrong. No. Start by saying, I don't know. I will find out. I'll look at it. I will study it. Okay? Anyways, so inshallah that topic is done. We have a bit of time. Let's continue with the duties of the scholar gentleness, softness, kindness, especially in teaching. The Holy Prophet says, lean is kindness or softness. So the Holy Prophet is saying, be gentle, be kind, be soft towards those you teach and towards those from whom you learn so again there's a quick remark here about the idea of community this is a beautiful community where people are gathered around knowledge and the manner in which they deal with each other all of them is through softness and gentleness and kindness for knowledge the holy prophet says for knowledge because you are teaching or because you are learning, you act with kindness. And this could apply inside a family, this could apply in society in general, this could apply in community, and so on and so forth. For the teacher, we said in addition to the obvious, you do represent religion. So people are not just focused on the information you're sharing. They're also looking at your attitude and everything else. For the learner, because this is how, before I get to the learner, the second piece because it's going to be important a little bit later. For the teacher, it's because this is how knowledge spreads to the people you're teaching directly and much later down the road. The way knowledge spreads, what they will do with knowledge later, everything depends on the gentle attitude you take. And you will see that explicitly in a number of narrations. The manner in which knowledge spreads is through gentleness and kindness and softness. Of course, here, there's also countering the human tendency towards arrogance, especially for the teacher. And we talked enough about this, this is just a reminder. The next point is that when we see so many hadith around this, and there are many, we said it's because it's not easy. Both sides, it's not easy. Not for the learner and not for the teacher. The teacher, they might get very impatient at some point. Okay? So the Holy Prophet is making sure that you remember. This is an instruction. Remain patient, remain kind, remain soft if you want to keep teaching. On the side of the learner too, this one is trickier and more nuanced and more subtle. Usually, if the teacher is really good, in a lot of cases, what should happen naturally is that one normal situation would be that with time, of course, you grow up and you learn a lot more. And so those things that seemed, you know, out of the ordinary to you, at some point very special to you, they become very trivial and random. Or you even forget about them. That's normal. Someone who teaches you how to read and write. Of course, that becomes very trivial later. So the Holy Prophet is saying, no, there's always a debt. That person taught you, therefore you remain soft and kind and gentle towards them. Forever. That's it. They taught you. That's your relationship with them now. Okay? So that's one aspect. The other aspect is, no, they taught you something very advanced. With time, You pass them. You exceed them in knowledge and expertise. You have access to more. And that's why I say this actually should be the natural course of things. If they are a good teacher, they take, they relied on teachers before them and they spent 10, 15 years learning stuff and they were able to present it to you in one year. They took 15 years to learn it. Your job is to do the same, by the way. Now, you're going to take that and teach it to others. And if you are a good teacher, you're saving them time and effort and energy. I have to go through 50 books to find the good one. When I teach, I say, and that's the book you look at. Don't waste time with the others. This will save you time. You don't need to read all of them. Which means that you're saving time. Which means that you should go beyond your teacher. That's the natural course of things. That you're constantly pushing the limit of knowledge, you're moving faster. Because someone saved the time. This is the expression they use in science, right? That you stand on the shoulders of giants. Why? It's not about that you're special. It's that you recognize the debt that came before you. They did all this great work so that you wouldn't have to, and you can just take it, take their conclusions and build on them. But sometimes, because now you, you are working at the cutting edge, that you feel you are working at the more advanced, more specialized, more technical knowledge, or you are clear that you have passed your teachers, suddenly you might lose respect for them. This is arrogance. And so the Holy Prophet says, no, that person taught you one day. And so remain soft and gentle towards them. That's it. That debt will always be there. They always will be your teacher. And we'll come back to that a little bit later in the series. A similar hadith, على العالم إذا عَلَّمَ أَنْ لَا Wa وَإِذَا from Imam Sadiq. He says, when a scholar teaches, he ought not to, he should not, be aggressive. You become overly aggressive as a teacher, overly harsh, rude. Imam Sadiq says, for the teacher to teach, they ought not to become harsh. And if they are taught not to act arrogantly, don't feel you're too great, too good now to ever be taught something because now you're a teacher. No. A true scholar is someone who, when they teach others, those who are lower than them in knowledge, they don't use harsh, rude, aggressive tones or attitudes or approaches. And if they are taught, it means they never fall into arrogance they don't raise their nose in arrogance I already know what can you teach me no, I remain open to knowledge I remain humble, I remain modest it's about the truth, it doesn't matter where it comes from, even if it's my student teaching me, even if I'm already known as a scholar if I hear something, I learn modestly, with humility I don't say no, I'm already a scholar what is there left to teach me I already know everything this is something so simple for me, right? Next hadith. This is from the Treatise of Rights of Imam sajjad a.s. There's two versions of this document, so I wanted to go through them because they differ a little bit when it comes to this part. And the first one, Imam sajjad salam, he says, حَقُّ رَعِيَّتِكَ بِالْعِلْمِ فَإِنَّ This is very important. Amma أَنَّ اللَّهَ عَزَّ وَجَلْ إِنَّمَا جَعَلَكَ قَيِّمًا لَهُمْ فِي مَا آتَاكَ مِنَ الْعِلْمِ So the imam starts by saying the right of your subjects and knowledge. The wording. The imam says these are your subjects and knowledge. In other words, people who rely on you for their knowledge. You're their teacher. So they are like your subjects. Like a king with subjects in their kingdom. Right? So he says the right of your subjects. So they have a right over you. As the scholar, as the person with the knowledge, the right of your subjects in knowledge. For indeed, the Imam says, the ignorant person is the subject of the knowledgeable one. فَإِنَّ الْجَاهِلِ رَعِيَةُ الْعَالِمِ They take care of them. Okay. For indeed, the Imam makes sure this is c- clearly established, and he says, as for the right of your subjects in knowledge, it is that you know that God, the Almighty and Majestic, has made you responsible for them has made you a guardian for them, a sustainer. And because in, in one version he says qayyaman. qayyiman is the one who sustains, the one who allows something to stand. Right? So, you ha- he has made you a guardian, or qayyaman, a sustainer over them, regarding the knowledge that he has bestowed upon you. Not in everything. In knowledge. They stand, if they can stand, in knowledge, it's because of you. You have to know that this is a right that they have over you, that you make them stand in knowledge because of the knowledge you have. You give them that knowledge, you teach them that knowledge. And you know that you are responsible to share this why? Over that which he has opened for you from his treasures. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has opened treasures for you and given you from those treasures. And therefore, you have to know that these people now have a right over you because of what God gave you from His treasures, opened, you, opened to you from His treasures. And so, if you excel in teaching people without showing arrogance or showing annoyance towards them, God will increase you from His bounty. God will give you more of that. وَإِنْ أَنْتَ مَنَعْتَ النَّاسَ عِلْمَكَ أَوْ خَارِقْتَ بِهِمْ إِنْدَ طَلَبِهِمُ الْإِلْمَ مِنْكَ كَانَ حَقَّنْ عَلَى اللَّهِ عَزَّ وَجَلْ أَنْ يَسْلُبَكَ الْإِلْمَ وَبَهَاءَهِ وَيُسْقِطَ مِنَ الْقُلُوبِ مَحَلَّكَ And however, if you withhold the knowledge from the people, or if you act arrogantly towards the people when they seek knowledge from you, then it is God's right to strip you of knowledge and its radiance and to remove your place from people's hearts. So, a, quick, a few quick comments here. The first one is that the moment you start carrying knowledge, and I think we've made this point sufficiently clear, that all of us, we carry knowledge. You don't have to carry a label of being a scholar or a teacher to carry knowledge. All of you know people who require your knowledge. Family members and friends, all of you, inshallah, will be parents. All of you will have friends. You have more knowledge than they do in certain things. You're responsible. The moment you start carrying knowledge, the imam says, there are people who rely on your knowledge for them to stand on. Right? You are their guardian when it comes to knowledge. So you have to know that they have a right over you. They have a right over you because you carry more knowledge than they do. That's one. Second comment. From the beginning of the hadith, the Imam made it clear that knowledge does grant a higher status. Whether you like it or not, you carry knowledge. Therefore, that knowledge comes with a different role. These people are now relying on you, they are your subjects, the Imam says here, or you are their guardian. When I tell someone, you are the parent and this is your child, I am recognizing that they have a higher status. But the higher status comes with a higher duty. You have now an additional responsibility that comes with that status. Okay? The third point. Therefore, the duty is that you actually act as a guardian. You have to act on that role. That's what we've been talking about. The duty, your main duty, once you carry knowledge, is to share it, to spread that knowledge. And so here, clearly for all of this to work, there has to be a recognition of this on both sides. If the person who carries the knowledge is not recognized as carrying the knowledge, or being in a position of authority over others because of the knowledge they carry, they will not be given the position or the opportunity or the space then that knowledge is not going to be shared and on the other side it might be recognized by the person doesn't want to share or they share wrongly they don't act like a good guardian it's not going to work these rights these duties have to be recognized on both sides from the person seeking and the person who can give for this to work next point the imam said a wording that is very important It is your duty to know that this is the case. It is your duty to know. In other words, you must believe. You must believe in what? Two things, the Imam said. One, that Allah has given you this knowledge. And two, that you have a role now to play. You have a responsibility because of the knowledge you have been given. It's not that once you know, your duty is to do. No, that's one thing. The other thing is the imam says, and you must know that this is the case. In other words, this is when I tell you for instance, you must believe. It's not that you just have to pray. You must believe in God. You must believe that this prayer is obligatory. And you must also pray. When the imam says, فَأَن That in itself is a duty. In other words, we have to think about this. I, the way I, I wrote it in my No it's is does this keep you up at night? Do you ever think about the knowledge that you have and what responsibility comes from it? If you actually believe that this is a right that God is saying, this is a right that people have over you. Just like there is a right in the money you have that you take out the charity. Do you understand that there's a right that people have over the knowledge that you now carry? What are you doing about it? Do you feel comfortable in what you have shared, what you have spread? Have you done your due diligence? And then hear the therefore. Therefore, the Imam says, if you teach, you have knowledge. You're teaching and you're teaching in the right way, with humility, with respect, without breaking the people, the Imam says. In Arabic, the term is walam tahrak bihim. Tahrak is what? It's to break or to cut off something. You don't treat them in a way that cuts them off. You don't deal with them in a way, these people that want to learn, you don't deal with them in a way that breaks them. That person is no longer interested in knowledge after or in religion after. You broke them. So long as you don't do this. Right? So if you act accordingly, with humility, and you teach, then this is the application of, this is a law, a principle in our, and the Holy Qur'an is very clear. You will be increased. You act in the manner in which you're supposed to with something God gave you. God says, I promise you that I will increase it. And the opposite. This is a very clear principle in the Qur'an. There are no alternatives. Only two. You either act gratefully, you thank God, you praise and thank God, and this is not saying the words. Yes, you say the words. But it's how you act with what you were given. That's what the Imam is saying. How do you act when the knowledge was given? Did you share it? Did you share it without arrogance, in humility, in modesty, so that it spreads properly like it's supposed to? God will increase. It's an act. Yes, I sit and thank God behind the scenes. No one knows. I thank God, I praise God that he has given me this knowledge. But my true gratitude towards Allah has to show in my action. What am I doing with the knowledge? Everything has to be shown. Gratitude in its own way. To show gratitude about the money God gave me, I have to give it. I have to give a part of it. That's charity. Knowledge, you have to share it. You have to spread it in a meaningful way. So that it spreads to others, it impacts others. If you do that, Allah Subhanahu wa Ta'ala says, I will increase you. That's what the Imam said. And that's what the Quran says about everything. When God proclaimed, this is a huge universal law. If you act with gratitude, I will increase you. Wa kafartum? And if you act, subhanAllah, the word. That's the true meaning of the word, by the way. Kufr is what? Kufr in Arabic is to cover something. That's the literal meaning of the word. You cover a truth. You're a kafir. One of the ways to describe a farmer, they're called kufar in the Quran. In one of the verses, the Holy Quran talks about when the rain comes and you know, when it comes, everybody is happy, including the farmers, and when it doesn't come, they're not happy because all their crops die. It uses the term kuffar. الْكُفَّارِ Al-kuffar in that expression in the Qur'an talking about farmers. Why? Why is the farmer called kafir or kuffar, the plural? Because they cover the ground, they cover the seeds with... That's exactly what happens when you disbelieve in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. There's a truth and you cover it. This is the literal meaning of the word. The way it's applied is the first general meaning, religiously, is you are ungrateful. It's the kufran. Something that deserves your thank, but you act in an ungrateful way. You do not thank God. You do not even recognize the blessing. And this is the meaning of kufr. It's not to say, you know, God does not exist. At the core of that, it's your lack of recognition that God made you exist and gave you all your bounties, gave you all of the sustenance. He helps you day in, day out. And you do not recognize, nor do you give thanks to all of this. This is the real meaning of kufr. Okay, so we don't associate these terms in this way, especially in English. But in Arabic, these terms are all connected. This is kufr. Right, so when the Quran here says, what, what is the opposition? What are the two things the Holy Quran says? the Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala said, "Either you are grateful, shakartum la azidannakum. You thank, you you act gratefully. What's the opposite? You act ungratefully. How does the Quran say it? Which term does it use? Wa in Okay. So th- this is important for us to keep in mind. Wa in my punishment is severe and those are the two options there's nothing in between whatever Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives you including knowledge but everything health, money, time any other bounties people in your lives you act with gratefulness you act with thanks you act with thanks not say the words you act gratefully towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala Allah says I will increase that I will bless that, multiply that, make it better. And if you do not, the only option is, in nadabi لَشَدِيدٍ My punishment is severe. And the imam here, he describes it. He says, a little bit later, he said, however, if you withhold knowledge, that's it, you've acted ungratefully, right? If you withhold knowledge, or you act arrogantly, or you break these people, the imam said, when they seek knowledge from you, then it is God's right to strip the knowledge away from you. That's it. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not do it out of injustice. You did something, you are not acting gratefully, that's the law. You're not acting gratefully, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, I take it away. This is the punishment. And what does the imam say? This is where you see all the, the rest. The punishment of God is not just that you stop being a teacher and a scholar. You lose the knowledge itself, one, and the imam continued, He strips you of the knowledge and its radiance. We've talked a lot about this throughout the ahadith. There is this spiritual dimension. This is the basira. This is what knowledge allows you to see. The light, the guidance of knowledge. This is not something you find in a book. This is whether knowledge has an effect on your soul or not. Does knowledge actually make you see the world differently? Live your life differently? Two people are exposed to the same information... One person becomes much more guided than another. What's the difference? This is the light. This is what's beyond the information. The Imam here he says, it's not only the knowledge that is stripped, it's the light that is with it. And then your place in the hearts of people falls. You don't stay in the hearts of people. And by the way, as a teacher, that would be the worst thing. If you actually care about being a scholar or a teacher. Because really, what else do you have? You have a word, and whether that word can influence. When I say, this is something good to do. This is something that should not be done. If people don't give weight, you don't hold any place in people's hearts, this is meaningless. It won't go. It won't catch. People will not change their lives because of the words they're saying has no effect. It has no impact. And so the imam says this is what you lose. You lose your position in people's hearts and you lose the light, the halo of spirituality that comes with knowledge and you lose the knowledge itself. Okay. And as we said, very similar hadith from Imam al-Sajjad salam and his Risalat al hukuk in the second version, the Imam continues in a, the the same way. We don't need to comment because it's the same beginning. اما حب رعيتك بالعلم so that you know Allah subhanahu wa taala has made you a garden, a guardian over it. And then he says, فَإِنْ أَحْسَنْتَ فِيمَا وَلَّاكَ اللَّهُ مِنْ ذَلِكَ وَقُمْتَ بِهِ لَهُمْ مَقَامَ الْخَازِنِ الشَّفِيقِ النَّاسِحِ لِمَوْلاهُ فِي عَبِيدِهِ الصَّابِرِ الْمُحْتَسَبِ الَّذِي رَأَى الَّذِي إِذَا حَاجَةٍ أَخْرَجَ لَهُ مِنَ الْأَمْوَالِ الَّتِي فِي يَدَيْهِ كُنْتَ رَاشِدًا وَكُنْتَ So the Imam here, he uses a different, in the second version of this document, the Imam uses a second metaphor. He says, if you act to those people as though you are a guardian over money, over treasures that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has bestowed you on behalf of him. So that when you see someone who needs of that wealth, you share it with them appropriately. So it's a slightly different metaphor, much more material metaphor. Someone gives you a certain amount. A king makes you a wazir, a vizier and gives you a certain amount. You're responsible for the treasury. And he says, if people are in need, give them accordingly, wisely. That's what the imam is saying. If you act this way with the knowledge, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sees you acting in this way, and the imam adds, you carry out your duties as the compassionate, that's the mercy, as the compassionate advising guardian to your subjects. You're loyal to these subjects, patient and sincere in your guidance, to your master among, the, among his servants, as one who will take out of the wealth that he has been granted when he sees others with need, and you remain hopeful and convinced of fulfilling his duties then you are indeed righteous. That's when you have fulfilled the duty. Remember, this is the treaty of rights. The imam is describing the right. So here you have a right. And these people have the right over you. These people that are your subjects and knowledge. So how do I know that I have fulfilled this right? The imam here, he says, once you do all of this, now you have fulfilled your right. And you're acting righteously. Otherwise, the imam says, Wa illa. Kumta Otherwise, you have betrayed God. You would have betrayed Him. And you have committed injustice towards His servants, to His creatures, just because you did not do this. You did not share the knowledge that you're supposed to, with compassion and with patience and with justice. وَلِسَلْبِهِ Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will strip you and will show you of his might, will deprive you of the things he gave you, which is the same meaning as the previous version, but the metaphor is slightly different. Maybe we finish with one more hadith. I'm trying to move as fast as we can in our series. This is an incredible hadith, and it deserves a much lengthier discussion, but very quickly. It's narrated That Prophet Isa عليه السلام قال Isa ibn Maryam عليه السلام يَا مَعْشَرَ الْحَوَارِيِّينَ لِي إِلَيْكُمْ حَاجَةٌ فَقُضُوهَا لِي قَالُوا قُضِيَتْ حَاجَتُكَ يَا رُوحَ اللَّهِ So it's narrated, it's reported that Jesus, son of Mary, peace be upon him, said O assembly of disciples, I have a request of you for me. Will you fulfill it for me? They said, consider your request to have been fulfilled. قُضِيَتْ حَاجَتُكَ فقام, this is Isa عليه السلام, فقام, فغسل أقدامهم. فَقَالُوا كُنَّا نَحْنُ أَحَقُّ بِهَذَا يَا رُوحَ اللَّهِ فَقَالَ إِنَّ أَحَقَّ النَّاسِ بِالْخِدْمَةِ الْعَالِمِ So Prophet Isa Alayhi salam he gets up after he tells them, I have a favor to ask you. They said, consider your favor done. What is it? Now they promised him that they will accept the favor. So he got up, the hadith says, he stood up and he proceeded to wash their feet. And then they said, we were the ones who should have done that to you. We were worthy of washing your feet. So he said, the most deserving people of performing the service are the knowledgeable ones, are the scholars. The one who should be serving others the most is the scholar. Then he continues, إِنَّ al I have acted with this modesty with you, with this humility with you, لِكَيْمَا بَعْدِي فِي النَّاسِ كَتَوَاضَعِي لكم. So that what I humbled myself in this manner, so that you may humble yourselves after me among the people. Of course, they are not at the level of greatness of Prophet Isa. Of course, the difference between Prophet Isa and them, and between them and other people, even though they are the scholars, is not comparable. Yet Prophet Isa tells them, just like I lowered myself and humbled myself and washed your feet, this is how I expect you and want you to serve the people and act with humility with the people after me, among the people. And then he continues, qala Isa السلام, Prophet Isa then said, wisdom it's cultivated through humility, not arrogance. If you want to cultivate, just like a plant, you want to plant it, you want to put the seed, and you want to watch it grow. Wisdom does not grow in arrogance. Wisdom grows in humility. Similarly, he says, just like crops grow in the plains and soft lands, they do not grow in the mountains or in the rocks. Okay. كذلك في السهل ينبت La لا في الجبل. I think the main points of the hadith are clear the level of humi- humility that is required from those who carry knowledge Prophet Isa is leaving no nothing for interpretation here he is acting this humility out and saying this is exactly how I expect you to act now that you are the scholars, now that you carry the knowledge, one, two he makes it clear that the way you spread that knowledge is not just by accumulating information. As we said, you know, gigabytes or megabytes of data that you have that you share with others. The way that knowledge or that wisdom or that guidance spreads is through humility and through service, not just information. And he acted this role out. And this is where, if you go back to, for instance, the Holy Prophet wa, you see exactly the same thing. There is an insistence in the Holy Qur'an. I think we all know the verses that talk about the manners of the Holy Prophet Why? What is this such a big deal? In itself, in itself, yes, the Holy Qur'an is describing, giving us the characteristics of the Holy Prophet. That's fine. But the Holy Prophet is not just like you and I, where we're curious to see what are his characteristics. The Holy Prophet is an entity with a mission. We want to see to what extent he is performing that mission. He is successful in performing that mission. That's really the criteria. As a prophet, how successful is he? As a messenger, how successful is he? And the Holy Prophet, the Holy Quran tells him, you're not responsible for who you guide or don't guide. What are you responsible for? It's how you share the information, your attitude, your general demeanor, your humility, your manners. And this is why the Holy Quran talks about you are truly of a sublime character. The Holy Quran is saying there is nothing else we can say. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling the Holy Prophet you are at the zenith. You are at the maximum of what you can do. You are truly of a sublime character. There is nothing else left. And we see that. We we all know this verse. In another verse, the Holy Quran in Surah Ad-Khid Al-Imran the Holy Quran says فَبِمَا رَحْمَةٍ مِّنَ اللَّهِ وَلَوْ <laughs> It's the same idea. The whole Quran says, It was out of the mercy of God that you were or you became gentle and soft with them. This is an incredible part of the verse, by the way. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells the Holy Prophet this gentleness that you have, this softness that you have, it's out of the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that you have it. And what else? Had you been rough, had you had a hard heart, they would have scattered away from you. So, what do you do now? So, forgive them and seek God's forgiveness for them. And the verse continues. This is the application. Prophet Isa does it. You see the Holy Prophet. The Quran is providing the testimony that this is how the Holy Prophet was. And this is in general how the Prophets are, the Messengers are. And this is the, I thought, two quick indirect remarks to this, and I'll end with this. The first one, truly when you see, when you st- study objectively the characteristics and the lives of Prophets, of the Saints, those that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chooses and sends to the people, truly you see this. There's a verse in the Quran that says, يَكُونَ لِلنَّاسِ عَلَى اللَّهِ حجة, So that people, so that humankind does not have any argument against God. You would think the verse stops here. But the verse says, الرسل, after the messengers. This is the, the, the final seal of the argument. No matter what you say at the end, but you had this example. You had this human being, the messenger that I sent you. One after the other. All of them. And Prophet Isa alayhi salam is one of them. This is where you see how they were. Who among us would say, this is how I'm going to teach the lesson to the people. Be humble. Prophet Isa alayhi salam at his level, one of the greatest messengers and prophets of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The Holy Quran says rank, the prophets and the messengers, they come in ranks. Perhaps no greater rank than Prophet Isa alayhi salam. He plays a universal role throughout history. There's a reason why He was raised and not killed. He could have been killed. Messengers were all killed. Prophets were all killed throughout history. No, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala maintains him until the end of times. He has to come to close the loop. And anyways, the ranks of Prophet Isa salam are unmatched. And Prophet Isa salam goes to wash normal people's feet. Simply to teach them humility. And tell them, after me, this is how I want you to act among the people. So now that you carry knowledge, I don't think any of us are going to be in a need to go wash people's feet. Even whether we consider this to be a symbolic act or not. But we need to keep in mind that there's a humility required, that there's a mercy and compassion required. If you accept this role and you accept the knowledge, then you also have to accept the service that comes with it, the expectations that have to, come with it, the humility and the modesty and the compassion that comes with it. That that was one remark. The other remark very quickly is how could they let him? But that's just me wondering. When you see Prophet Isa alayhi salam coming to you about to do this, how can you let him? In any case. So let's stop here inshallah. sayyidina muhammadin wa ala alihi